The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Take God's Word and turn to Matthew chapter 6. We are continuing our study of the Sermon on the Mount, and we come to a section, what I'm going to be calling a subsection of the series. It's learning to pray. And you know, when Jesus concludes this Sermon on the Mount, and we'll eventually get there. This is the 27th sermon we're doing on Sermon on the Mount, and I didn't even think we are going to have that many. I thought we were going to do like 13 or something in this series and move on, but I guess there's other plans. But when he came to the end, then he said, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, he is like a man that built his house on the rock. And I think it's important then we hear what he has to say, not just hear an entire Bible. But here he's teaching us to pray. He's given us an outline on how our prayers should be. And in verse 9, he says, In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And the verse we're going to be looking at today is verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Though I cannot cover everything God's kingdom entails... But I do want to share some things with you. It's a kingdom where God rules. It's God's government, not man's government. It's a place where God is sovereign. He has the authority. Uh, It's a kingdom of God's grace. You know, it's in Hebrews 4.16 where we read, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace and obtain mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. So a throne speaks of his kingdom, speaks of his rule, and the word grace is not a throne of law. He's not like other earthly kings. It's a throne of grace. And it's also a kingdom of God's goodness. In Romans 14, 17, we read, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. What do we like in our daily lives, right? It says, drink, eat, be merry. And we think that's joy. But this kingdom, it says, but, the, but righteousness and the peace and of joy in the Holy Spirit. That's true joy. That's God's goodness. And also, of course, it's the kingdom of God's glory. In Luke 1, 32, 33, he will be great, and he will be called the son of the highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. And folks, this is already predetermined, as God put it in Psalm 2. He says, yet I have set my king on the holy hill of Zion. So it's not a four-year inauguration type of deal he's talking about. This is the eternal kingdom. In Revelations eleven fifteen, we read the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. So folks, our greatest desire should be to see Lord reigning as king in his kingdom and to have honor and authority And that's the way it's always been, but at the same time, there is something that he has not yet claimed. 
To pray thy kingdom come is to pray for the program of eternal deity of God to be fulfilled. Christ to come and reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. So this program should be our priority, preoccupations of our lives and our prayers. But if you analyze your prayer, you can see how typically our prayers are self-centered, selfish, focused on our needs, our plans, and not thy kingdom come. We're often like little babies, right? All babies know is me, 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 give me food, right? They don't care if you wake you up at 3 o'clock in the morning or whatever. And then it gets into those toddler stages. It's like, no, give it to me. It's mine, mine, mine. But the best way we can pray is that God's kingdom be advanced. You know, with all the things that are happening in this country and around the world, a lot of people ask, what's going to happen to America? Aren't you worried economically, politically? You know, we see all these protests, all this violence. Homosexuality in schools, teaching all these genders. Aren't you concerned? Aren't you concerned where we're going? Well, in the sense, yes, because this is my homeland, and I'm grateful to God that we can meet like this and worship our God. I'm thankful for it, but folks, to tell you the truth, the reason I'm able to stay so calm because America is not my concern. My concern is God's kingdom. And I know this may sound rude, but I'm not concerned with a passing nation. That's what's going to happen to America. It happens to all nations because it's built into any nation because of sin. Proverbs 14.34 says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is reapproached to any people. The seeds, damnation, is built into this. When? I don't know. But we can see already that we abandoned as a country our causes for God. We abandon biblical standards, morality. We're backsliding. So, folks, America is not the issue. The issue is the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Christ and his causes. And really, think about it. If that's your priority, the kingdom of God, no matter what happens, they can never touch it, right? They can come take your car, take your house, come take some trinkets, but they can never take away the love you have for God. They can never take the love you have away from, you know, your spouse, your children, and so forth, or God's people and your church. They can take all those things, but they can never touch thy kingdom if that's your priority. So we are to invest our lives there and for causes of God. That's why, folks, we don't want to get sidetracked with all this political stuff. You know, it doesn't matter if you're... Democrat, Republican, because no human political system can ever be come together with the kingdom of God because they're both sinful and God is what? Holy. So, if folks, again, it doesn't mean we shouldn't pray for our leaders. Bible tells us that. We should pray for our leaders, our country, and so forth. Uh, we should pray for missionaries, pastors, and all that. But when we pray... We need to pray that God's will be done through those people. And we need to understand the greatest opposition to Christ's kingdom, the greatest opposition to your Christian living, is this kingdom here. It's the kingdom of Satan. And the word kingdom, folks, I need to kind of understand is 
it means here how it's translated, thy kingdom come, it doesn't necessarily refer to a geographical location. It means to rule, to reign. And I think it's important we understand that because the word rule or reign gives us something different in our head than the word kingdom, doesn't it? So when you think of kingdom, what do you think of? Henry VIII, maybe the Magic Kingdom, Disneyland, horses, and so forth. We think of those things, and that's why when Pilate said to Jesus, are you a king? That's our implication. He's like, you're a king? Where's your kingdom? Where's your horses? Where's your kingdomly dress? So it means Christ rules. So it doesn't have to have walls and castles, and eventually it will, but I'm just in referring to here, it means Christ reign. Now, when we pray thy kingdom come, we are praying for God's rule through Christ's enthronement to come, to come to earth, his glorious reign on earth to begin. And the word come, where it says thy thing, kingdom come, it translates that as quickly, come quickly. And I think we find that is in in. Matthew 24, 27, it says, For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man be. So this is the coming of his millennial kingdom. This is what Lord is speaking to. So in Revelations 20, in verse 4, uh, it says, And I saw thrones, they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast in his image, not received his mark on their foreheads, on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So, folks, there will be suffering. You see those people? Their heads been cut off. There will be persecution. But... If thy kingdom is your priority, they lived and reigned with Christ. So pray for God's kingdom where he will be alone, king and lord of kings. And it will be a kingdom on earth, folks, but it will not be a kingdom of this world. As Jesus said to Pilate in John 18, 36, said, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. So I'm amazed that sometimes we waste our time and energy as Christians trying to make this place, a earth, a better place to go to hell from. I'm not saying totally disregard, but we do not advance the kingdom with political or trying to, you know, better the society, we are to have a kingdom agenda. That's our job. That's why we do not advance, folks, to God's kingdom, trying to improve human society, and because it's not a human kingdom. It's God's kingdom. We're not of this world. If God said, my kingdom is not of this world, then we need to understand we're just sojourners. We're pilgrims here. We're just passing through. And the kingdom of God, or of heaven in some passages that we reached, it became priority of Jesus' preaching. When he preached, he preached the kingdom of God. In Luke 4.43 says, But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities, because for this purpose I have been sent. There is no other gospel than 
the good news of this kingdom, of our Lord in Christ. And always everywhere he went, he preached the message of salvation and what? Entrance into the kingdom. In other words, whatever this kingdom is, is in the heart, and that was his message. Why? Because that's the heart of the plan. If you think about it, that's the heart of everything. The rule and the reign of Christ is the pinnacle or apex of human history. Folks, after Jesus was crucified, you know, and then he remained on earth for 40 days, what do you think he continued preaching? <laughs> the kingdom of God. If you look at Acts 1.3, it says, To whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to what? The kingdom of God. Now, when we read the Bible and it says kingdom of God, it refers to the past, the present, and the future. So, for example, speaking of God's kingdom in the past, we can read in Matthew 8.11, and I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So speaking of that kingdom. And when Jesus was teaching and preaching, if you look at Luke 17, 21, he says, Behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst, because he is the king. But the particular focus of our praying, folks, is the, for the kingdom that is yet to come. We need to understand God has and always will be the kingdom of he rules the universe. He controls it. He created it. He holds it together. And that scripture is uh, all over the Bible. For example, if you see Psalm 145, 13 says, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures throughout all generations. And Psalm 103, 19 says, The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. And Chronicles 29.11, we find ours, O Lord, is greatness, the power and glory, the victory and the majesty for all that is in heaven and earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you and your reign over all. Your hand is power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. So he is the ruler of the universe. But the most obvious fact of life that now God's ruling on earth is not the same way as he rules in heaven. And it's by divine earthly kingdom we pray that that will come. So our praying should be Christ to return to reestablish his earthly kingdom and establish obedience to God's will. And when he comes, Revelation 2.27 says, he will rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like potter's vessels, and I also have received from my Father. And folks, after a thousand years, his earthly kingdom will blend in with the heavenly kingdom, and there'll be no distinction, distinction, and he will rule over all. So let thy kingdom come. We pray for God's kingdom to come presently. Well, how does it come right now? How does it come? Well, several ways. 
in a present but limited time, but also miraculous way. The God's kingdom is coming to earth when a new soul is brought into the kingdom. So our prayer should be somewhat evangelistic, missionary type of prayer because kingdom comes in the way of conversion. If we read Matthew 18, first three verses, and at the time disciples came to Jesus and said, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child to him and sat him in the midst of them and said, surely I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by means, no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So there has to be a conversion. And conversion consists of three things, a lot of things, but primarily three things. There's an invitation. There's an invitation. If you look at Matthew 21, I'm sorry, Matthew 22, uh, first two verses, and I'm sure you're familiar with this story where uh, everybody's invited to a marriage feast. And Jesus answered, spoke to them again by parables and said, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. And then in verse 9 says, therefore, go in the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So that's what we should be praying for, inviting people into the kingdom. And of course, we have to explain to them the repentance. That's the second. Invitation follows repentance. In Mark 1.15, Jesus says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. When they repent, folks, there has to be a willing response, too. You can't strong arm to somebody. It has to be a response, willful response, and it has to be a surrendered response. And we'll talk more about that in a second. But if you look at nine, well, Luke 9, in verses 61, 62, it says, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. We can't follow God like that. You know, it's like, hey, God. I'm going to follow you, but I got some other things to do. No. Jesus says, but Jesus said to him in verse 62, no one having to put his hand on the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God is for those who have decided and surrendered their lives to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, and their priority becomes the God's kingdom come. And we don't look back. So in present existence, the kingdom on earth Folks, is internal in the hearts and minds of those who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we should be praying that those numbers multiply, increase. So we're praying for salvation of souls. And folks, and we need to understand that this kingdom, this kingdom has infinite value. In Matthew 13 Sure, you're familiar with the story. In verse 44, it says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which man found and hid, and for joy over if he goes and sells it, all he has to buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, and when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So, folks, there's surrender, and it becomes the most valuable thing in our lives. Do you guys remember when Jesus said, those that love their mother or father more than me is not worthy of me? What, what, what do you think he meant? That you have to hate your parents? No. But when you measure your love for your parents or your spouse or your children, 
and compare it to the love you should have for God, it will look like that you hate your parents. It's a love, but it's just illustrating how much more love you should have for God because it's a treasure. You sell it all just to have it. And second, kingdom comes not through conversion and all those things. It's come from surrender. A lot of people say commitment, but I say surrender because those who have been converted should be responding to the rule of the Lord in their lives. You see, sometimes I hear people say, I made a commitment and so forth. Well, in my opinion, the kingdom of God does not come to commitment. I made a commitment to the Lord God and so forth. You see, when you commit, really, who's in control? When you commit, you can commit. It could be a good and noble thing, don't get me wrong, but you commit yourself to soul winning, for example. You commit yourself to prayer. You commit yourself to sacrifice. All those things are good, but who decides? You do. I'm committing myself to this. I'm committing myself to that. But when you surrender, what what is surrender? God, whatever you want me to do, I will do. It comes through surrender when you lift your hands out to God and say, I am under your control. So there's a difference. So it comes through surrender because he is in control. He is our king. And that's how we pray, thy kingdom come and thy will be done. And then we pray for that future kingdom to come. And folks, we want it come fast, don't we? It's interesting that God is the only one that knows the date and the time and so forth, but still teaches us to pray for it, that it comes fast. And Jesus, in the last chapter of Revelation, we, John says, I'm sorry, it says in Revelations 2, 22, 20, it says, who testifies to these things? Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. In that day, when that happens, our prayers will be finally answered. And folks, We're not so much looking to this event. It's not an event, but as much as you're looking for a person to come. Not necessarily a kingdom, but Jesus to come back. As Paul writes to Thessalonians in 1.10, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he had raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So that is God's kingdom. That is what we're to pray for, that it expands on earth by conversion, adding people to, and then eventually it will come and blend. So in this opening prayer, everything is still focusing on God. What's God's priority in our prayers? That his name be hallowed. Hallowed be your name. Then really, in my opinion, it talks about God's program. Well, what's his program? Thy kingdom come. And if you look again in Matthew 6.10, second part of the verse, it says, your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And folks, again, you know, when you're preparing these messages, there's so much in these verses, you don't know what to pick and choose and what to say, and so you try to condense it, but there's no way that my human mind can condense it all, so I'm giving you what God laid on my heart, because we can also talk about God's will for, for ages right? And many people, when they read, your will will be done, as I mentioned in previous sermons, on earth as it is in heaven, well, why do we need to pray for that? Isn't he sovereign? 
isn't he going to do what he's going to do anyway? Right? If he's sovereign, wouldn't his will be done anyway? Or our prayers override his will, and then we can strong-arm God into do what we want. That's one of those paradoxes of Scripture. It's a paradox. I'll be honest with you. And I'm gonna be not going to be trying to be a, some theologian trying to give you all the answers because, you know, one of the paradoxes in Scripture, God's being three in one. God's three in one. That's a paradox. You won't find the word Trinity in the Bible. But we find throughout the Scripture that Jesus says, Father and I are one. The Holy Spirit, he will send it. Jesus being God and man. How do you explain that? Fully God and fully man. It's one of those things. So what seems to be hopeless contradictions to us, folks, we need to understand is no dilemma to God. We need to accept them by faith. And we hold both of these truths. Yes, God, Jesus was fully God, yes, and he was fully man. Can I explain how that? Not necessarily. Can try to, but ask God when he can get up there in heaven. But there are secret things, folks, secret things that are not open to us. We'll never understand because those things belong to the Lord. If you look at Deuteronomy 29, 29, it says the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But those things also revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Maybe do all the words of his law. So from Scripture, it's absolutely clear God is sovereign. And yet, he allows us to exercise certain things, certain decisions on our own. So if we weren't able to make certain choices in our lives then what's the point of God's commands? Right? Why would God command me to do anything if he programmed me not to function that way? It would be pointless. And if God did not act in response to prayer, if he's going to do anything anyway, then why pray? Our prayers become pointless and meaningless. If you're going to do anything in your way anyway, why, what's the point of praying? So when we pray, folks, we need to understand thy will will be done. The first thing in your prayer should be that God's will become our own will. God's will become our own will. And second, that praying that his will will prevail on all the earth as it is in heaven. You know, when we come to this scripture again in Matthew 6.10, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. A lot of Christians have the wrong attitude towards this. And one of the, you know, wrong attitudes is they pray out of feeling of compulsion, right? God's will has to be done. He's too strong to resist, so what's the point of praying otherwise? So their logical conclusion is uh, who look to God, no point of prayer, just why ask for the inevitable? So they pray out of feeling of compulsion. Other pay, pray with passive resignation. I think that's when, uh, that's where a lot of us fall into this category. We have this charitable feelings about God, but because they believe that he will do his will, whatever he wants, 
when we pray, we say, hey, God, you know, let your will be done. But we, we have no expectation that he will actually do anything that we ask. We talk to the Lord about something, but then we just kind of leave it, forget it, and go on. Because we don't think it'll make a difference anyway. There's a great illustration of that in, in the Bible, and uh, I won't read you the whole story, but remember when Peter was in jail and he had the sanctified jailbreak, the angel came. In the book of Acts chapter 12, Peter was in prison. And Christians gathered together to pray for Peter because during that time, there was another Christian, James, who was beheaded. So they were afraid the same thing will happen to Peter, so they started praying. They got it in the house. They started praying and praying. Release Peter, release Peter, and guess what? Peter was released. Got him out of jail. And what's the first thing Peter does? Peter actually walks over and goes to that prayer meeting, right? Little servant lady comes, name's Rhoda. And she just hears the voice of Peter, and she doesn't even respond, and she runs back to the prayer group and tells them, Peter's at the door. Peter's there. They kind of ignore her. She's like, no, Peter's there. And I said, Rhoda, Peter's in jail. What do you think we're doing here? We're praying for him to be released. Now get back on your knees and pray a little harder. And she's like, no, he's at the door. And some theologian over there said, oh, maybe it's his angel, right? Well, wouldn't, if it was his angel, wouldn't Peter need him the most over there? Why would an angel come to your prayer meeting? So we pray like that. We pray, we ask, but yet we don't expect the answer that his will will be done. And finally, when she persisted and they went and opened the door, what happened? Look at Acts 12, 16. It says, they opened the door and saw him. They were all astonished. Why? Because like so many other evangelicals or Christians in our time, we question God's prayer. We question if he's really going to hear us or, or just do what he wants to do. And the reason that happens is because we don't pray in faith. We don't expect our prayers to change anything. So out of duty, obligation, if you would, we just pray. Status quo, just meet it. But remember... Another parable that Jesus told them about, about the wicked judge and the widows coming to him and nagging him and nagging him, and then the wicked, wicked judge finally, you know, did what she wanted so she would just get away from him. What was, his, what was his point of that story? His point of that story that our prayers, we should continue to pray, not just pray once and let go. If you look at Luke 18, 1, and he spoke the parable of them that men always ought to pray and not to lose heart. So it's interesting. God is sovereign. God does what he wants. But at the same time, he tells us to pray. And another thing that disturbs me is when Christians, I hear Christians, a lot of Christians, no matter what happens, they always say, it's the Lord's will. 
Is Lord's will being done on earth right now, folks? Tricky question, right? No, the Lord's will is not always being done on earth. Do you think rape, murder, all these things are God's will? No. And the very fact that Jesus tells us here that thy will will be done on earth as it is in heaven indicates that it doesn't always get done. That's why he wants us to pray that it does. It says, thy will will be done. But we come and say, what will be, what will be. God's going to do it. You know, there's that high view of God's sovereignty. And I think that view is very destructive. It doesn't teach what the Bible teaches. Yes, God is sovereign, but it's not God's will that people die. Why would he want people to die if he came to defeat death? It's not God's will that people go to hell. Or why would he send his son to die on the cross in agony and blood? He came that we might escape hell. And interesting, if you look at 2 Peter, chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not lacking concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but should all, but all should come to repentance. So, folks, sin exists on earth. It causes horrible consequences in people's life, but it's not evidence of God's will. We need to understand that. His patience is allowing more opportunity for people to repent and come into his kingdom of salvation. And again, some people over emphasize man's will in prayer. And this is where God is the genie. We're going to pray, pray, and then he's like that judge. He's going to do what we ask anyway. He's like a cosmic vending machine, if we would, right? In some congregations, the gospel has become so diminished, it's just self-fulfillment. Self-fulfillment. Name it, claim it, right? But... Jesus really puts a kibosh to that because if you look at it, whose name needs to be hollowed? Thy name. Whose kingdom come? Cornelius' kingdom? No, thy kingdom. Whose will be done? Thy will. Not mine. So how do we get God's will done on earth? Well, how do angels do it up there in heaven? You know, David's saying of the angels doing God's work up there, and if you look at Psalm 103.20, It says, bless the Lord, you his angels, who excel in strength, who do his word, heeding the voice of his word. Basically, obeying the voice of his word. Obeying the voice of his word. And Jesus said in John 15, verse 7, says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, then you will ask what you desire and that shall be done for you. You see, when God's word abides in you, his will becomes your will. And that's why he says, anything that you desire, I should do. Because why? Because your desires have become his desires. And you take God's word, and folks, again, it's all about scripture. This book, there's no new revelations. There's no, Everything that God wants to tell you or has to say is 
right here in these 66 books. That's it. It's in black and white. But the question becomes, how much time do we spend in this book? As Christians, have we surrendered? Do you think God, you can fool all of us, but do you think God really believes you like, oh, God, I want to know your will, but then you don't spend any time in his book that shows you what God's will for you is? What's God's will? We studied last, last time a little bit about God's holiness. He says, be holy as I am holy, right? Well, how do you do that? Well, read the scriptures. So we're not fooling anyone, and it's a little bit hypocritical when we say, God, I want to know more, anything about your will I will do, yet you don't study any of his words. And the way that God's will is done in heaven is obeying his word, and it's done quickly, exactly as he says it does. There's no arguing in heaven about God's will. You know that? They do exactly how he says it, when he says it. There's one guy that tried it. He no longer lived there. There's no arguing with God's will. And this is what he says in Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. So we have to do the will of the Father here on earth. And our prayer should be that every person and everything on earth will come into conformity with God's perfect will. And I want to explain something to you that being dedicated to God's will, perfect will, by definition means you have to be opposed to Satan's will. How did Satan become Satan? Did he do God's will? He said, no. He said, I, 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 right? Not thy will, but I will ascend. I will go to the North Star. I will be like the Most High. So when we're here, folks, when we see everything that's going on, thy will be done on earth, is to rebel against the worldly idea, folks. And what's the worldly idea that's coming through everywhere right now? Sin is normal, right? It's normal. Homosexuality, transgender things, all those things they try to normalize. And I'm not trying to be political or anything, but have you seen any commercials, you know, that's how they do it. You see two guys and a baby. You know, they, they'll put two women in a baby. They're trying to normalize it, like, you like, you like it or not, but that's in, unconsciously people and kids see that, and they just get used to it. You know, and people think, well, what's wrong with that? She has two mommies. He has two daddies. But we should be opposed to that because that's not the agenda of God's kingdom. We have to do it in a loving way. And we know that God is the only one that can change the hearts of people. But we have to be opposed to that. And when Jesus was on earth, he preached against sin. He acted against sin. And if you study this Sermon on the Mount, he had a big problem with the Jewish leaders, right? Called them hypocrites. You're fasting, you're praying, it's all false. You got the false religion. Let me tell you how it's going to be, Right? And then when they started selling things in the house of prayer, he kicked them all out. If you look at Matthew 21, verses 12 and 13, then just Jesus went into the temple and drove out all those who 
sold the temple and overturned the tables of the money chargers in the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of what? Prayer. Prayer. But you made it a den of thieves. So to pray for God's will be done on earth is to pray against everything that's wicked that's happening, corrupted. And folks, you know, sometimes we evangelicals in churches accept certain things. Jesus loves you as you are. Yes, he does. I agree with that. But he loves you too much to leave you that way. There has to be a transformation. A lot of Christians these days have, you know, the profession, but they don't have the possession. Because they think that you just can just profess God as my Savior. Well, confess with your mouth that what? Not just your Savior. He's your Lord. He's your Lord and Savior. And there has to be a transformation. You can't go live the way you're living. So we have to pray for righteousness. We have to pray that his will be done. Again, that means Satan's Satan's will to be undone. And folks, in Psalm 68, verse 1, David says, Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered. Let those who hate him flee before him. And we hear the saints under God's altar in Revelation 6, 10 says, And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge your blood to those who dwell on the earth? It's those that were beheaded and so forth. They're waiting for God to avenge all those evil things, and he will. So we have to pray in faith, believing that God will hear our prayers, And again, I think the greatest hindrance in Christians' life is not lack of technique or what to pray for and things like that. It's faith. We just don't believe it'll make a difference, but it does. Prayer is the most powerful weapon you have. Think about it. Why did Jesus have to go along and pray all the time? He went and left his disciples. And that's why his disciples are saying, like, hey, teach us to pray. It's important that we pray. Now, let's talk about God's will a little bit because really there's three distinct aspects I want you to look at so we can understand God's will properly. You know, the first aspect I want to call is his will of purpose. And what I mean by that, it's a vast, comprehensive, tolerate, the toleration expressed. He is in control of the whole universe. I mean, basically meaning nothing catches God off guard. Nothing is a surprise to him uh, there's, you know, no going on. Oh, God, I didn't expect that. What, what happened there, you know? So God has this will of purpose. So it means God has allowed or made certain things happen, and he's never shocked at them. And that shows us how great our God is. So it's the will of purpose is, is so covers everything. So you look at billions and billions of, you know, situations happening on a daily basis across the world. Not a one is a surprise to our God. Everything is under his control. He is sovereign over the universe. He is king. This is his, God's ultimate will. You know, in Isaiah 14, 24, it says, The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely as I have thought, so it shall come to pass, and as I have purposed, so it shall stand. This will of God, folks, actually allows sin to run its course 
till the cup is fulfilled. So this is the, the, the purpose will. So everything is going to God's plan and his foreknowledge. The second will we need to understand is the will of desire. And the will of desire is within his will of purpose. So his will of desire does not change his will of purpose. So, for example, you know, his will of purpose was for Jonah to go and preach, right? No matter what happened, it still ended up preaching, right? But his will of desire, unlike the God's will of purpose, his will of desire is not always fulfilled. It's very unfulfilled, actually, if you compare it to the Satan's will and what's happening in our world today. We said, hallowed be your name. Does his name always get hallowed in the earth? No. There are people that are not hallowing his name. You say, thy kingdom come. That is, on earth, people repenting and coming to Christ. Are there people coming and repenting to Christ? No. Are there hearts that reject God? Yes, there truly are. Is his will being done on earth as it is in heaven? No. So, folks, again, not everything that happens on earth is God's will. You know, for example, if a child dies in the family and they say, well, it's God's will. No, it's not. That's not God's will. You know, some, somebody going through a divorce, oh, I love this woman now. It was God's will. No, it's not. Read the scriptures. It's not God's will for you to get a divorce. You hear about a disaster or a flood or earthquake, fire or train wreck and so forth. It's not God's will. Now, it may sound, what I'm telling you right now is heretical, but in this context of God's will of desire, it's not God's will. This is what Jesus came to stop. This is what he is, uh, for example, he said, I'm not willing, God is not willing that anyone should perish, right? Are there people perishing all over the place and dying and going to hell? Well, why? If it's you're not willing that anyone should perish. God who made all men, he wants them to come to the saving knowledge and the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. So God's will is done in heaven, but it doesn't always get done on earth. Say, wait a minute, but God has to allow it, right? He's a sovereign king. Yes, but we cannot make it an expression of his will. You see, God allowed man to choose between good and evil. I believe man has that choice, but at the same time, I believe God is sovereign. That's one of those paradoxes I have to deal with too. It's not an expression of his will. He tolerates it. God is not responsible for sin, not responsible for the consequences of sin. It's not his will. And let me show you what I mean by that. Here's some tensions if you look at it. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, he says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Who is he talking about? Who's going to destroy the body and uh, soul and body in hell? That's God. God will destroy a soul and body in hell. That's not Satan. Satan's going to get destroyed there too. God destroys the soul and body. Well, it must be God's will. That he destroy them? 
Well, as I already read several times, if you look at 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not lacking his promise, and some count lackness, but long-suffering, not willing that anyone should perish, but all should come to repentance. Do you see that? You see, God's a holy God. And that's what I kind of want to touch base on last Sunday. And God's justice and God's righteousness, because he's holy, must provide for dealing with sin. But it's not God's will. Jesus greatly desired Jerusalem be saved, right? He prayed for them. Well, why weren't they saved? Look at Luke 13, 34. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were what? Not willing. That was the repeated experience of God's son. He came to earth that we may have life and have it abundantly, Right? And look what it says in John 5, 40. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. And then in 1 Timothy 2, 4, we read, Who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Well, if he's willing, and that's his, then what, what, what's happening here? God? You want Jerusalem to be saved? Why don't you just make him safe? You see, because God... He's not made us robots. He's made us beings. We can choose his way or go another way. In God's will of desire, he gives you his desire, but you choose, you can choose not to follow it. But because you don't follow it, it will never mess up his will of purpose. Because whatever he said, regardless of what you do, he's going to do what he set out to do. But you have this will of desire. In other words, your choices never stop him. Your choices may mess you up, rip you off blessings. Instead of blessing you for utilizing you, doing some God's work, guess what? God's going to utilize somebody else, but you're not going to mess him up. He's still going to accomplish what he set out to do, but you're going to mess out on the blessings. And this is where it comes in to us as Christians, what I call the God's will of command. You see, and the reason I say God's will of command, because it's only Christians that are, have the capacity to carry out those commands. The will of command is desire of the heart of God, and we are who his children have to obey him. And we have the capacity to obey. In Romans 6, verses 16 and 18, we read, do, not, do you not know to whom you are present yourself, slaves to obey? You are that one slave whom you obey, whether it's sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But God, be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that from the, of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you become slaves of righteousness. God's will of purpose, his big, is the ultimate end of this world. Second, Christ's coming is going to happen 
no matter what. His will of desire embraces conversion. Desires all men to be saved. And his will of command embraces our commitment and our surrender in obedience as his children. What's the great enemy of God's will? If you don't do God's will in your life, you know what the problem is? Pride. If you really get down to the root of the problem, it is always pride. Pride caused Satan to rebel. Pride causes unbelievers to reject God. Who is he to tell us? And really, pride causes believers to disobey him. And for God's will to be accepted and to pray for in sincerity and with faith, self-will, self-will must be forsaken by the Holy Spirit. That's why I mean surrender, not commitment, but you have to have no self-will. You're living in his kingdom. You report to the king. You do as he says. In Romans 12, Paul writes, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. That's your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is where you can't have the same mind as the world. You have to have clear thinking of what's really happening. You don't accept things that are sinful. You see them the way God says it. And then it says that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So when we pray in faith and in conformity to God's will, our prayer really, what I call is progressive sanctification for us too. So when we call to bring heaven to earth, we're hallowing his name. We're letting his kingdom come and seeking to do his will. And folks, I can tell you his will is perfect. You know, a lot of times we are scared to pray for God's will to be done in our lives because we're afraid what he's going to make us do. Well, what if he sends me to missionary as Africa, to Africa? What if he says this? Or what if he doesn't let me become that president of that big company? What if, what if, what if this? What if that? What if that's God's will? It might be funny, but it's true. And that's what prevents us from praying, hey, God, I fully surrender whatever you say, whatever you guide, I will do. But God's will is the best for us. It's the best place to be. And so many times, again, people think it's kind of like robbing them of their blessings. Folks, it might rob you of earthly blessings. I'm not going to argue that. But it will never rip you off on heavenly blessings when God's going to be rewarding you. And sometimes people think the will of God does not provide blessings here on earth. Well, folks... What's your agenda? The kingdom of God or the kingdom of earth? And I think if we truly understand that God's will is best for us, we would want it because God wants the best for us. And if we had enough sense, we probably would want that. And a lot of times we don't want God's will in our life 
because we can only see it from our eyes. You know, it says uh, in 2 Samuel twenty two thirty one, 31, it says, As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in him. Do you trust your God? Again, we're seeing it with our human eyes, but I know there's going to be a Super Bowl, this thing's Super Bowl, called Super Bowl today, right? I heard Tom Brady's not in it for the first time in like, I don't know. Tom Brady was the only thing I knew about football. But there's the second thing I learned about football is that often the defense and the offensive coordinators, they sit at the top. And they call out some plays to the coach down below. Well, kind of use this analogy to what God sees in our will. We only see with our eyes, but God's from up there. He sees a lot more, right? And I'm sure if he opened it up, He'd be like, oh, yeah, we want your will. So we need to trust him because who has better eyesight? He does or us. You see, what you see, God sees what he sees. And, folks, while we're in flesh, there's always going to be that conflict within yourself because you're in flesh. You want what you want. And you're always going to be fighting that here. But how important it is to us as Jesus says here, thy, when thy kingdom come, thy will be done, to follow those instructions. We should live for the kingdom. Folks, we should look for the kingdom. We should pray for the kingdom. We should long for the kingdom because, folks, in the end, Jesus is coming. As we sang this morning, Jesus is coming. Maybe afternoon, noon, nobody knows, but Jesus is coming. And praise God for that. Let's pray.